Well, let's go ahead and grab our Bibles. Today we're going to be meditating on Psalm 90. Psalm 90. Psalm 90 is the first song of Book 4 of the Psalter. It was written by Moses a very long time ago, way before even King David, and even longer before Book 4 was compiled by some folks during the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, and that was after right after the Babylonian exile. The theme of Book 4, by the way, seems to parallel the story of the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness of the Hebrew children. Uh, We find that story, of course, in the Book of Numbers, which is the fourth book of the Bible. And so Book 4 of the Psalms seems to parallel the fourth book of the Bible. Psalm 90 is Moses' prayer for the people before they entered the promised land. Uh, He's praying for the generation who would go there that God would give them his wisdom to live worthwhile lives for God. And so after the Babylonian exile, God's people embrace this prayer for themselves too. Uh, The the faithful remnant, you remember, returns to Jerusalem. They humbly recognize their sin. They, They correct their ways and they begin honoring God with their lives and worshiping him in the way that God had commanded them to all along. And this is certainly a prayer that we can embrace for ourselves as we humble ourselves before God. Uh, And it's a prayer that we should be praying for the coming generations as well. Uh, The coming generation that follows in our footsteps of faith. And so as we read Psalm 90, may God grant us all the wisdom uh, to live for him, to live in a way that honors him and is worthwhile to him. And so let's read Psalm number 90. A prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but yet as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80, but their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants, and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, uh, 
establish the work of our hands. The word of the Lord. Well, about 11 years ago, Leslie and I remember being here, worshiping right over here, about where you were sitting, Rich and Sandy. In the back of the Amen section, we were, this was long before I became a pastor, we were worshiping God with everybody else, singing his praises, and it's a day that we will never forget, because what we witnessed was, was really awe-inspiring. Some of us here today remember a beautiful 39-year-old woman named Maureen Morley, and she loved the Lord. She loved her him with all of her heart. But she contracted cancer, and it was terminal. We all prayed for her. We prayed that God would heal her, but in his wisdom, he chose not to. But Leslie and I remember this day so vividly because we were standing right behind her and her husband. And we remember watching her just lift her hands and praise to God. And the joy of the Lord was just flowing out of her. She loved the Lord. She, it just was all over her, her love for the Lord and the joy that she had. And she also experienced that joy because she knew that very soon she'd be in paradise with Jesus Christ. And in fact, that was the last time she attended church because not more than two weeks later, we gathered again in this room to celebrate her life at her funeral. But you know, something struck me as I watched her worship that day. She knew that she was going to die very soon, and yet she chose to spend some of her very last precious moments right here, worshiping God with God's people. She could have been checking things off of her bucket list, but she wasn't. You know, I don't know about you, but I've got a long list of things that I want to do before I die. I want to take a long, epic motorcycle, uh, adventure motorcycle ride out west somewhere. I want, to, I want to go to see the British Isles and Ireland and Scotland and Wales and all those places. I want to go to the Holy Land. I want to learn Spanish. I want to finish my model train layout. Of course, I say that that never ends, but I haven't gotten to that point yet even. You know, I want to restore an old car or a motorcycle or a tractor or something like that. So if I, if I knew that I only had a short time to live, I'd have a long list of things to choose from. But as far as Maureen was concerned, there was only one thing on her list, and that was to, to live her last days for God and not for herself. She wasn't just saving her worship for the end of her life, though. She... She had been worshiping God and praising him and serving him from the day that God had saved her through Jesus Christ. And that's why she could say to her friends during her struggle with cancer, this is what she said, whether I stay or go, I'm still alive. This is not a tragedy. Her life was a witness to everybody around her about the goodness of God, and her death was a testimony to the hope that she had in Christ as much as her life was. She had lived well for the sake of her Lord, and she knew that by God's grace, she would be in the presence of God forever. 
Well, this is the kind of thing that Moses is praying for in Psalm 90. He's praying that God's people would learn that lesson, namely that they and we along with them would, would learn how to use the short time that God gives us for him and for absolutely nothing else. And so in Psalm 90, Moses makes a vivid contrast between the eternal nature of God and the temporal nature of man. He's acknowledging the fact that our time is limited for a very specific reason. It's limited because of our sin. And we depend completely on God's mercy, not only to save us, but also to teach us to live worthwhile lives, to use every moment that that God gives us for him and for nothing else. And so as Moses prays, he has three concerns that are on his heart. The first one is time. And we'll take a, a long look at that. The second concern on his heart is wrath, specific, specifically the wrath of God. And the third thing that's on his heart is wisdom. Wisdom. And so the big idea of Moses' prayer is that we depend on God's mercy to teach us how to wisely use the time that he's given us. And our take-home lesson will be this. It's not how long we live on this earth that matters. It's all about who we live for. And so let's dig in. Let's take a look at the first concern on Moses' heart as he prays, which is time. He's very concerned about time. And in fact, the way I count it, uh, it depends on how you count this, but there are at least 25 to 30 references to time, either in individual words or phrases, all throughout this song. For instance, in verse 1, God has been the Jews' dwelling place or refuge for all generations. And then since before God created the earth and forevermore, he is God from everlasting to everlasting. In verse 2, a thousand years to God is like a day. In verse 4, a man's life is as fleeting as a dream. In verse 5, it's also like grass in the morning that fades by evening. In verses 5 and 6, and then God brings us to our end. In verse 7, and there's a limit to the number of our years. In verse 10, and so on. In almost every verse, there's a reference either to God's timelessness or our limited time. God's relationship to time is very different from ours. Namely, God does not depend on it, but we do. God doesn't depend on time. He's not subject to time. This is Moses' point in verse 2. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Of course, Moses knew this firsthand, didn't he? Because God himself told him so when he appeared in the burning bush. In Exodus 3.14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. There's a whole lot of meaning packed into those words. God is declaring to Moses that I am the one who always is. I've always been and I always will be. And I'm also the one who causes all things to be. This is an emphatic assertion on God's part, if we can say this, of his alwaysness. In other words, God has no beginning and he has no end, and therefore he has absolute authority over everything. Jesus said the same thing to the Jews, by the way, in John eight fifty eight, He said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. 
The Holy Spirit is also from everlasting to everlasting. In fact, he was there from the very beginning in in the second verse of our Bibles in Genesis 1 verse 2. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. And who was there? Well, it was the Spirit of God who was hovering over the face of the waters. And so our triune God is the great I Am, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He has always been, and He will always be. He doesn't depend on anybody or anything else to exist. He has no beginning, and He has no end. And apart from God, nothing exists. He's the cause of everything, including time itself. Have you ever thought about that? Time is one of God's creations. In fact, it's one of His first creations. In verses 4 and 5 of Genesis 1, And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. That's the first passage of time. This helps us put God's sovereignty into perspective, doesn't it? Just think about this with me for a second. If there were anything, anything at all that God was subject to, it'd mean that he's not truly God. If there's something else that controls God or limits him in any sort of way, he's not all-powerful and sovereign, is he? If time limits God, it means that time is greater than God. But of course that can't be, because we just read that God created time. So God doesn't depend on time, he's sovereign over it. He's not waiting for anything to happen, and he doesn't have to hurry about anything either. He's neither impatient, and he doesn't have to scurry around to make sure something happens in time. Everything happens exactly when he says it's going to happen. And so all of creation, including time, bows to the will of God. Hallelujah, that's good news. This is exactly what Moses is affirming in his prayer. Now all this is mind-bending stuff. It it can make your head hurt as you think about it, and that's fine, because God, God created us to be subject to time. It's hard for us to imagine not being subject to time, just like it's hard for us to imagine how God knows everything. That's mind-boggling in itself to even think about that. It's, it's mind-boggling to think about how God is perfectly holy and that even his anger is never sinful that all of his ways are perfect and holy. But the point that Moses is making is that even time is God's creation. He is the absolute ruler of his whole creation, and he has no beginning, and he has no end, and he governs time. But on the other hand, we have both a beginning and an end. Our lives are fleeting. In verse 5 it says that our lives are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. Well, that really puts us in our place, doesn't it? And appropriately so. We live within the confines of time. This is the way God wants it to be. And so we turn to God as our dwelling place or our refuge because he is the sovereign one. He is sovereign over time and sovereign over us because he created us. And so what that means is that God uses time like a tool for our good. He uses it to shape us and to grow us. God is from everlasting to everlasting, but we are not. And it's good that we know that 
because it means that we understand that God is God and that we are not. And so when God is on the throne of our lives, we depend on him. And we even trust him with our tomorrows. And here's how God uses time like this to shape us and to grow us. We, we can trust in God when he's teaching us patience, even through suffering. Romans 5, verses 3 through 5. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces what? Endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who's been given to us. That gift of hope is given to us over time, isn't it? As we wait for God, as we learn to endure, as we bear through our suffering with faith, and we know that God is at work in all of those things. That's what he's teaching us. And this is a level of trusting God that only can come about in time. Time is truly a blessing in the hands of a God who works all things for good. But here's the thing. There's a reason for our suffering, isn't there? in this life in general. There's a reason for it. Something happened in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve sinned, and all of the sudden time took on a whole new meaning for them. And this brings us to our second concern, and that is wrath, the wrath of God. In verse 3, Moses says, You return man to dust, and say, Return, O children of man. God returns us to the dust, the dust from which he made the first man, Adam. Human beings now have a beginning and an end, and it's because of God's wrath toward our sin that we have an end. Verses 7 through the beginning of verse 9, Moses elaborates. He says, We are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in light of your presence, for all our days pass away under your wrath. Moses, of course, is recalling Genesis 3.19, where God punishes Adam for his rebellion, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Paul reminds us in Romans 5, verse 12, that sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. And so God has no beginning, but we do, because he created us. God has no end, but we do, because we've sinned. And that end is death. Just as God has everything to do with our beginning, he also has everything to do with our end. Our death is the direct result of God's wrath over sin. For the wages of sin is death, right? You know, I've heard so many times in my life from a variety of people how death is, well, it's just a part of life, you know? It's just part of the cycle of life. It's part of the cycle of things. Today we're fond of calling ourselves the human species, to kind of put us right in there with all of the rest of God's creation. We're nothing special. We're just the human species. We're just a part of the Lion King's circle of life. And death is just a part of that cycle. 
And it's something that we can be pretty indifferent to as long as we relieve ourselves of that burdensome and intolerant belief in a God who would punish sin. Well, this is the kind of misconception that Moses is getting at in verse 11. Who considers the power of your anger or your wrath according to the fear of you? And so we find that the same God who in verse 1 is a dwelling place, a place of safety, a place of refuge, we find that that same God is also a dangerous God if we don't repent of our sins and put our trust in Him. He's righteously angry uh, because our our, our sin demands a payment. And so He's righteously angry at us. But you know, a lot of people are convinced that he just overlooks all of our sin, that as long as we just strive to be good people. And part of the reason for this is because God's wrath in our world seems archaic and obsolete. An angry God just feels wrong to us in our culture. And so we might have a tendency to avoid that angry God. By glossing over passages like verse 11 and, we then, and then just to focus on, on God's love to the exclusion of his wrath. Dr. Steve Lawson is one of the great preachers of our time and he asserts we've so elevated the love of God over the wrath of God that we've air-conditioned hell. And that kind of attitude means we can have a difficult time connecting our sin to our mortality. Brothers and sisters, our sin is directly related to our mortality. But you see, when we lose that connection, we lose this big chunk of our ability to fear God appropriately and really an ability to worship Him. I remember years ago talking to an unbeliever about her mother's death. She was angry at God, if God existed in her mind, but she was angry at God because her mother, who was also an unbeliever, had died of cancer, just like Maureen did. If God is so great, Why didn't he heal my mother? That's what she said. Her mother was a good person after all. Why would he allow this to happen to her? And my friend bristled at the idea that her mother died just like every other human being because of sin. And so her view of God was small. But I tell you what, she believed in the righteousness of her mother and she believed in her own righteousness. She could not believe in a God who would punish sin. And so she really had no reason to fear God. And she figured that her anger was greater than God's could ever be. She figured that her anger punished God more than his anger could ever punish her. You see, if we're not considering the power of God's anger, as verse 11 invites us to, then our God just shrinks. You know, long ago, I used to scoff at the idea of God's wrath, too. I said, I said, God is love. I was quoting 1 John 4, 16 very accurately, but I was ignoring verses like verse 11 of Psalm 90, along with countless other passages in the Bible. The fear of God, brothers and sisters, has to be a large part of every true believer's faith because we believe Christ when he says in John 3.36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. 
We believe Paul in Romans 1.18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And we believe God in Isaiah 13.11, I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. And we believe the lesson that we learned in Psalm 1, verse 6. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. But you know something? Even as true believers, we really can't fathom the power of God's wrath. We believe in it, but we really, truly can't get our brains around the power of the wrath of God. Charles Spurgeon, who was the great preacher of the 1800s, declared that Holy Scripture, when it depicts God's wrath against sin, never uses hyperbole. It would be impossible to exaggerate it. It is impossible to overstate the power of God's wrath. Jonathan Edwards a century before, it was another great preacher, and he put it this way in his famous sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. He said, The bow of God's wrath is bent, and the arrow made ready on the string, and justice bends the arrow at your heart and strains the bow, and it is nothing but the mere pleasure of God and that of an angry God without any promise or obligation at all that keeps the arrow one moment from being made drunk with your blood. And so without the wrath of God, we lose so much of our reason to bow before him and to worship him for who he really is. He is the God who holds our very life in his hands and on whose mercy we completely depend. And so, brothers and sisters, what an incredible blessing it is, that moment when we realize what Hebrews 10.31 says, that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. What a blessing it is to comprehend that. I mean, if you were driving along and, and somebody warned you that you were about to drive off a cliff, you'd be scared to death, but you'd also be incredibly grateful to them, wouldn't you? You'd get out of the car and you'd, and you'd hug them and thank them for saving you. Well, this is, it's the same way when we realize the magnitude of God's wrath toward our sin. God warns us of his wrath. And when we believe him, we fear him. And that fear also causes us to fall down and worship God because we realize that we need him to save us, and only he can do that. And so we plead for mercy not on the basis of ourselves, but on the basis of God's holiness, not on the basis of our wretched deeds, but because of the perfection of his son, Jesus Christ. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And so that fear, that wonderful fear... <laughs> As Proverbs 9.10 declares, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And this brings us to Moses' final concern in Psalm 90. 
which is wisdom, godly wisdom. Fearing God is wisdom because the fear of God teaches us to live in a way that pleases Him. You know, if we don't think that God takes our sins seriously, we're not going to take our sins seriously either, and we really have no reason to serve God. But when by God's mercy we begin to realize that there's no way to overstate God's wrath toward our sin, that's when we begin to fear God appropriately. And so Moses prays that God, in verse 2, will have compassion and teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. His prayer is that God will teach us to realize how limited our time is, that God has only given us but so many on this earth, that our days are quite literally numbered and that God has every right to pour out his wrath on us and to put an end to us. But by his grace and mercy, he does not. And he allows us to have precious days to serve him. You see, numbering our days teaches us wisdom. Our lives suddenly become meaningful because we want to serve the Lord every day of our precious lives. We don't want to just count the days till we die and wait for that day passively, but we want to live with purpose and value every day as if it might be our last chance to serve Him in this world. And that's exactly what Maureen was doing right over there 11 years ago. And it's what we're called to do, even if we think we're going to live another 80 years. As God's servants, as God's servants, every day of our lives is incredibly precious and valuable to God. But we need him to teach us to live with purpose. We don't want to waste our lives. And so Moses is praying that God will teach us how to live. When we fear God appropriately, that's when we become interested in the things that God is interested in. We want to live with moral and ethical skill in a way that produces fruit that honors God and blesses everybody around us. I read something very sad the other day. On a a popular discussion board online, somebody posed the question, what do you live for? And person after person after person answered, myself and happiness. But you see, as followers of Christ, we have a real purpose that goes far beyond ourselves. And that leads us to an incredible joy, the kind of joy that Maureen experienced. In the last two verses of Psalm 90, Moses is praying not only that God would show his servants Uh, his work, that is, that God would work in them, but also that God would establish the work of their hands. In, In other words, that God would work through them as well. His prayer is that their lives would be productive in God's sight. That's what we live for. We live to be productive for the Lord, and that brings us joy. As followers of Christ, we're called to set our minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. Colossians 3.2. And then in verse 17, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. That's wisdom. To live in godly wisdom is to be completely devoted to God and to be disciplined and fruitful. Wisdom is when we have the right affections and when we make the right choices in God's eyes. Wisdom is when we live by faith. And the result is joy and thanksgiving. 
thanksgiving to God. Wisdom doesn't come by our own cleverness. It only comes because of the power and presence of the Holy Spirit who lives in us the moment we put our trust in Jesus Christ. And so this is why Moses is praying for wisdom. He realizes that true wisdom comes only from God, nowhere else. A few minutes ago, Ernest read Ephesians 5, verse 15 and 16. says, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because of the days are evil. Godly wisdom calls us to walk as children of light, as Paul says in that passage, to to turn from the evil things of this world so that we can produce godly fruit because of our faith in Jesus Christ. And in verse 9 of Ephesians 5, Paul says, For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. Living for yourself has no value whatsoever, but we become valuable and precious in God's sight when we live wisely. You remember the lesson uh, in Psalm number one, what the godly person is like. He is strong, firmly planted in God's truth, standing like a tree by streams of water and yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. But the ungodly live for themselves. They live for themselves, and they are not so. They're not like the godly. They are like chaff that the wind drives away. And so that's why Moses prays for wisdom. He prays for wisdom that comes from a fear of the Lord. He wants us to be fruitful in God's eyes. The fear of the Lord truly is the beginning of wisdom. And God's wisdom gives us purpose and value. And where does that fear come from? It comes from realizing that we cannot exaggerate the power of the wrath of the great I am. And so Moses has prayed for us. He's prayed that God would have mercy on us, have pity on us, O God. That God would have mercy on us by teaching us how to wisely use the time that he's given us. We bow before a God who is from everlasting to everlasting. A God who holds our lives in his hands. And because of his wrath, we plead for mercy. Now the good news, of course, is that Christ is our answer to that prayer for mercy in a way that Moses couldn't imagine when he wrote this prayer. Christ gives our life purpose and he saves us from the wrath that we deserve as sinners. 1 Corinthians 15, 54 through 58. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus, through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved Brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. You see, Maureen was exactly right. Her death was not a tragedy, because whether I stay or go, I'm still alive. And the same is true for us. Death, where is your victory? Where is your sting? 
We read a part of Romans 6.23 earlier, for the wages of sin is, is death, but let's read the rest of that verse. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's why Maureen was raising her hands. It's because she knew that was true. We have eternal life. But you know, that makes our life in the here and now all the more important to God. It isn't a matter of how long we live on this earth, but it does matter who we live for. And that means that Christ must be on the throne of our lives and Him alone. There can be no one else or anything else on that throne. And when Christ is on the throne, our labor is never in vain. And our lives have meaning and purpose. Our lives have eternal meaning and purpose. And so our time is precious. Our days on earth are short compared to the span of eternity. It doesn't matter how old or young you are. Your life, your life is as fleeting as a dream. Your life is going to end soon on this earth. And so what are you living for? Who are you living for? What are you doing with the time that God has given you? Are you numbering your days in the fear of the Lord? Are you living with godly purpose as if today was your very last day? Are you living for your bucket list? Or are you living for Jesus Christ? Are you living in godly wisdom? Is your life a testimony of the greatness and goodness of God? like Maureen's was. So pray about these things. The next time you pick up a TV remote, pray about these things as you ponder whether to participate in Stories in the Park in December. Pray about these things as you get ready for work tomorrow morning and, and ponder how God would have you relate to your boss who may be difficult to get along with or how God would have you do the work that you have to do that he has set before you. Pray about these things as you, as you learn to honor your parents who may just seem like they're from a different planet today. Pray about these things as you're confronted by the world around you that is so hostile to the God whom you love. Pray about even those political convictions that you hold so dear. Are you willing to submit those to the throne of God. Pray about how God would have you handle your finances and the decisions that you're making about career and education and your family and your relationships. How does God want you to use your time? How does God want you to live? What kind of fruit does he want to see come from you? So these are excellent questions as we go before the Lord and sit with him at his table. He has invited everyone who is a believer, everyone who has put their trust in him to partake at his table. And so I think this is a great time for us with this message for us to consider recommitting ourselves to living for Christ. Oh Lord, Teach me to number my days that I may gain a heart of wisdom. And so I'll invite the deacons forward and we'll pass out the bread and we'll eat together.
And we'll do the same with the juice. As we think about living wisely, we need to think about the fact that there's a reason that we can live wisely. And that's because by God's grace and his love for us, he poured out his wrath not on us, but on his son. And so let's just read through Isaiah 53 together. And ponder these things as you think about your own life and how God would have you live. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. That's what your Lord has done for you. And this is our motivation for living for him. So take and eat.
by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. You see why the wrath of God is just unimaginable. That wrath that God poured out on his son is what we deserve because of our sin. But God, by his grace, has chosen to crush his son instead. So do you see why Maureen was rejoicing on that day? Do you see why she could say that it doesn't matter whether she lives or dies, she's still alive? You and I are alive forever because of the life that Christ has given us and because he took our place on the cross. And so that's why we live. We live because we rejoice. We live because we are so glad and grateful for what he's done for us. And so take and drink. Go ahead and invite the worship team forward and let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for revealing to us a glimpse 